Well, good evening, <clears throat> and what a thrill it is to look out and see so many of you here coming to hear about the heritage of our church. It is uh, indeed uh, my pleasure to have this opportunity that you have given me to share the um, the history of our church. And um, I hope that you enjoy what you're going to hear. What I would like to say is that if I um, were to give you all the history I have been looking at and reviewed, we would be here until the annual meeting, I believe. <clears throat> but um, we're going to try to hit some of the high points. The nice thing is that there's a lot more really good history that maybe down the road we can have an opportunity to investigate. Uh, one thing I have to tell you and make you aware of is that this church has excellent, excellent records that exist from the very first day that it organized. I think that is just remarkable. The church clerks through the decades, over a century, have done a fantastic job of recording the chronicles of this uh, congregation. Um, and there are many of them, the early ones for years and years and years, are all handwritten in very beautiful penmanship and are just as crisp today, I think, as when they were first written. We're really fortunate to have that log of information that uh, exists for our, our church. Um, and I want to thank all of those, too, who added to what the church uh, records show by sharing with me pictures and documents and booklets and things that have um, enhanced the information that we have. Um, so I am um, I'm just thankful to be here tonight. I hope that you hear things that will help you understand why we are where we are today. We are where we are today because we are where God wants us, okay? That is why. But I would like for you to understand some that went on to bring us to to this place to celebrate 125 years. Um, I have a very simple verse to kick us off tonight. Psalms 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. All right, and I'd like to start with just a word of prayer, if you'll bow with me. Our Heavenly Father, we count it a privilege to come before you tonight, and our hearts are full of thanksgiving as we here are the beneficiaries of 125 years of your love and care for this wonderful church and congregation. Lord, we just thank you for the love and support and direction and guidance that you have shown us and we know that we are where we are because you reign. In Christ's name, amen. All right. <clears throat> now, many of you may be aware that we began as the Congregational Church of Hillsdale. Okay? Hillsdale Congregational Church. That was our original name. And the name was changed only in 1982 to Hillsdale Bible Church, okay? And so a long, long, long time we went with the name uh, Hillsdale Congregational Church. So I thought we ought to look way back in history and see how come we, have that, we had that name for so long and what it meant. Um, in fact, if we look back in history, what do we look back to? Creation. God having the idea of uh, creation and the idea of each of us and the idea of our knowing that we would be in sin and that we would need a Savior and the idea from before creation that he would provide a Savior for us. And he has done that. And how wonderful that this church organized during the Christmas holidays when we celebrate that great gift we also celebrate the origin of our church. I think those two go hand in hand, and it's wonderful 
that they do. God continued to provide through all the years for us, uh, and we are the beneficiaries of his, his provisions. And I want you to even think back to Martin Luther <clears throat> and the other church leaders who saw that we needed to move away from the regimented, authoritative dictatorship of the Catholic Church in Rome, and we needed to develop a church that was based on God's Word and people being able to respond to God individually, as individuals. And so we owe a lot to the Reformation. We just celebrated not very many years ago, a couple of years back, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Well, in England, where many of our people come from, the um, <clears throat> church, uh, the Catholic Church lost its sway there due to Henry VIII, who replaced it with the church that he figured he was the head of, uh, the uh, English Anglican Church, the, what we call the Episcopalian Church in America, but it's the Anglican Church. And that, in turn, became almost a mirror of the Catholic Church. It had the same authoritarian dictatorship control where the individual churches and individual uh, members had little to say about what they were learning and had many things withheld from them. In the uh, later 1500s, a group of people in England revolted against those limitations that were placed upon them. They were the separatists, and they were the ones who wanted to separate from the established church so that they could develop a church in which people could worship God, in a person could worship God in his or her own way, and uh, have a direct relationship with the Lord. Okay? That was very important to these separatists. They did not want authorities telling them what to believe and how to believe. Well, <clears throat> maybe you know, but those separatists had a lot of trouble in England and knew that they needed to leave. And so they fled England or else were severely persecuted to the point of death. And a bunch of them moved to Holland for a while, but then they kept looking for a place to go where they could worship as they pleased. Where did they go? They came to the New World, and they were the pilgrims. Okay, Now, the pilgrims had 102 passengers on the Mayflower. At least 35 of those were separatists. Okay, They were people who wanted to separate from the church of England and have an independent democratic church. Okay? They came to America, they settled, we love them, we have uh, such great thoughts of them. We are descendants of them. We are a part of them. Okay? So I want you to carry that home with you. Out of that growth of separatists came the congregational denomination, the congregational church. It started in New England. It Those pilgrims joined with the Puritans for a while. The Puritans wanted to purify the Church of England. Okay, The separatists wanted to create a completely independent church. The Congregationalists stayed very strong to their ideas of uh, independence and a democratically um, run congregation where the individual congregation made decisions for itself. It didn't have to depend upon rules and regulations handed down from authoritative bodies. <clears throat> Only God's word and prayer and the, and the understanding of God's will and a personal relationship with God led those people in their walk, in their religious walk. Okay, <clears throat> now it's pretty interesting to note that many, many of our um, revolutionary and pre-revolutionary patriots were congregationalists, okay? Even the famous Paul Revere, who made the ride to warn about the British coming, was a congregational member. He belonged to a congregational church. When you think about how 
especially the early Americans looked at freedom and loved the idea of freedom and being a democracy, you can see how the Congregational Church would have fit in with their idea, of their political idea of a lifestyle, that religious idea of the individual church being um, uh, answerable to God and itself, okay, as being very um, much a part of that idea that early Americans had in their quest for freedom. In fact, uh, a lot of the ideas of religious tolerance we owe to the Congregationalists. We owe it to them all around the world. They came and spread over New England and brought in democratic ideas, which laid the foundation for a free church, a free state, free schools, and a free social life, all the things that our country stands for. They were uh, significant in, in leaders in the promotion of education, missions, evangelism, Christian union, religious programs, and moral reform. So why am I telling you all this? I want you to have a feeling of what congregationalism meant when it came to the uh, territory, to the prairies, to help establish churches. Um, from the earliest days in America, the Congregationalists saw the need for schools, and they uh, began many institutions, hundreds of institutions that still exist in America. And I think you might be interested to know that Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and Amherst and Wheaton uh, and Fisk University in Nashville, those are just a few of the universities that owe their origin to the Congregationalist Church. I think that's so interesting that that church was instrumental in using its doctrine and its philosophy to start these schools. Um, you look at Harvard and Yale today, and maybe you have a little bit of a queasy feeling thinking that they actually started to train congregational ministers. That was the reason those schools were incorporated. Um, maybe they have drifted from that somewhat. <clears throat> Not only were the Congregationalists interested in schools, they were interested in missions, and they have always had a great um, mission outreach in America and in the whole world. Congregationalists, as they spread across America, were very instrumental in, um, in their spread because they had a mission society set up to reach out to new areas. As soon as new territories in America opened, Congregationalists were there to help with the um, uh, organization of new churches. Okay, now I want to move on. I want you to just have that understanding of what congregationalism was like, because I think we have a heritage there in that we were uh, a part of that um, idea of individualism, which is really uh, an American ideal. <clears throat> um, now, you know that our that America settled from one sea to the other sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. What happened in the middle of the country? There was a big hole left where there was no settlement. It had been left for the Indians, okay? Indian territory, both the eastern side and the western side of what is now our state today. For years and years and years, those lands were bypassed and not open to settlement. But the white, the, mainly the white people, the American settlers, kept looking at all that land sitting there and um, begging the government to open those lands for settlement, to open those lands for settlement. It may not have been the right choice, but after the Civil War, the United States government began to take the lands they had deeded to the Indians away from them. Those lands had been given as territorial nations to those Indians, not as individual acreages per person. Okay? So the American government began a slow process of gradually removing 
what they had given to the Indians. The um, Dawes Act was the act that finally sort of hit the nail in the coffin and made the Indians accept individual allotments of land, freeing up the vast areas that they owned as nations to be open for settlement. Okay? And um, do I have to put my first slide or will you? Oh, here it is. Okay. This is uh, our state of Oklahoma and a little scrunch, but that's okay. Right in the middle, you see that pale green. Those are the unassigned lands. April 22nd, 1820, um, 1880, 1889. Wow. And I get angry when kids can't remember those dates that I try to teach them. April 22nd, 1889, those unassigned lands open for settlement by a great run, a land run. What an unusual uh, way to settle land, that it worked, um, essentially worked. Um, when that happened, people from all over the world, really all over America, came to that small area to claim uh, a quarter section of land and get a new start in life. There was such a diversity of people who came. They had, um, I mean... Their, your neighbor might be someone of a different culture, a different language, a different race, a different religion from you, but they had settled right on the next land to you. And it was only through working together that you could accomplish the things you needed to do to get a start. Can you imagine settling in um, the open territory of Oklahoma where nothing, no roads, no uh, improvements, Nothing had been provided for you. The land had been surveyed, but nothing showed up of those surveys. You had to find the markers yourself, okay? So it was said that you could stand in the prairie of Oklahoma when you made a plane and spin around in a circle and look out and see nothing but waving grassland, grassland all the way around you. That was where you were. It would take days and weeks and months and even years of work in order to settle that land, get it cultivated, get it providing for you and your family, have water for your uh, animals and for your family, Okay, have just the basic necessities of life. Once you did that, and there are many a pioneer family in here who's been through that. Once you did that, then I think you began to set back and say, wow, we left a lot behind us. We left our schools. We left our families. We left our communities. We left our churches. And people began to think about and talk about creating those things that they had 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 they had left behind them in order to settle this wild, untamed country. So the first effort they had to do was to uh, see what was available, <clears throat> what they needed to do for just daily existence, okay? And that was a huge, huge job. Once they got their feet on the ground, they could begin to think about some of the other things. Now, I don't like to think that any of our pioneer settlers were um, out there doing all that work without looking to God for leadership and guidance and, and uh, safe care uh, in all the activities that they had to go through. I know, and, you know, as they lay out in the, on the hillside uh, at night under the stars uh, with a saddle for a pillow as they did that, I know they saw the wonderful heavens that God had created. And they had to be impressed with the majesty of God. And they had to be thinking of him and um, wanting to gather together in worship to recreate those churches and things that they, that they had known and that they had loved and that they had benefited from, that assembling together of God's people. Well, the congregations, including the Congregational Church, had known that there would be a need for churches, and so they sent missionaries into the unassigned lands 
soon after the run to begin to put churches together. Some of the people who were missionaries there um, looked at what was happening and they recognized chaos. They recognized chaos. There had been not much in the way of preparation for beginning churches out in the prairie. Okay, And um, the report went back to the Congregational Home Mission Society, okay, the Congregational Home Mission Society, the ones who were in charge of evangelizing new areas. The report went back to them that they needed to have a plan in place if they were going to make a difference in getting new churches in the new settlements. So we were fortunate that maybe that we weren't the first territory to be settled, but and we were not the second either, but we were about the fourth. But we were the biggest. We were the largest. The Cherokee Outlet, 60,000 parcels of land in that red area, and on the day of the run, 100,000 people lined up to claim those pieces of land. So a good number of people didn't get something, did they, when they sought out to get those. There were a lot that weren't didn't get their dreams met. But the congregational church was ready for them, okay? They came out with a plan, and they had a man in charge of the plan, and, oh, I had this cute, these, these couple of cute pictures I wanted to show you. This is the Cherokee Strip. This is the Kansas border. This is everybody mingling around, lined up, getting ready for the run. You see that most everybody did horses. Some did horses with buggies. There were some who rode bicycles, uh, some who had um, wagons, and the train even went through, and people could ride on the train cars and jump off wherever they thought the right piece of land was for them and claim it, okay? So it was mass chaos, and it was our land was settled September 16, 1893. What do you know about Oklahoma in September? It's usually hot and dry and barren, okay? It's been, the ground's been pretty well burned, and that was exactly what was true. Dust was everywhere. When that gun went off, huge dust cloud blew up in the air and those people took off to find their claims. Well, as soon as they made their claim, they had the same problem that the people at the unassigned lands had. They had all those chores and jobs to survive to get done. But the congregational church was there. There was there and ready to help them. They, the congregational church had a clever um, mechanism for reaching out to areas to help establish churches. And it was uh, called the gospel wagon train. I thought that was so neat. They had a wagon with a uh, missionary team in it and a little pump organ so they could, and songbooks so they could do services. And they went around finding groups of people who were interested in organizing the church. And um, they brought with them the materials that were necessary. They brought with them the certificates that had to be filled out. They even the, uh, the territorial government certificate that had to be uh, filled out and filed in order to organize yourself as a church. So I, I think the Congregationalist, as a group of people, made quite an um, improvement in their uh, outreach because of their experiences during the earlier uh, land settlements, and they had a plan in place. And uh, they moved ahead and did a very good job. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to tell you that in the during the early years of the Cherokee Strip being settled, the Congregational Missionary Society established 76 churches with 2,580 members. Um, with 63 houses of worship built and three under construction and 22 parsonages, okay, in a land that was nothing but uh, waving grass. In a few years, they made quite a difference, and we were one of the differences that they made. Okay, it's important to know, and I apologize for this picture. It didn't. It's not. 
good like I wanted it to be. It's a little pixelated. But you do get the opinion of a fairly good-looking man there. His name is J.H. Parker, Reverend J.H. Parker. He's the person, he lived in Wichita, Kansas. He's the person that the Congregational Mission Society put in place to lead the settlement, the establishment of mission churches in Oklahoma and Indian territories. That's a job he took on. And he traveled all over this area uh, helping with the establishment of churches from an administrative supervisory role. Now, he was a, um, had, had done several church plants in Kansas, especially in the Wichita area. And he also established Fairmont College in Wichita in 1886. He wanted it to be the Yale and Harvard of the West, okay? He knew those other churches, or those other colleges had been congregational institutions when they began, and he wanted uh, a, a congregational uh, institution of higher learning in the West. Well, do you know of Fairmont College today? No, you don't. But do you know of Wichita State University? Wichita State University's roots are Fairmont College in Wichita, okay? The very same campus, the very same uh, organization. And he is considered the first president of the institution that's Wichita State University, okay? So a remarkable man and one that I knew absolutely nothing about, and yet he plays a very important role in the establishment of this church. Okay. Um, now let's move on to our church, Hillsdale Congregational Church. Our organizational meeting was December 23rd, 1894. So people had made the run in September of 93, and now it was like, 15 months later, and they have got, they have accomplished enough of the organization of their individual lands uh, to the point where they can look at coming together as a neighborhood to create a church, as a community to create a church. And so they agree um, to do that, and they have an organizational meeting. The person who comes to organize that is um, Reverend John Hawks, okay? John Hawks was a, born in Ireland, immigrated because of the Great Potato Famine, immigrated to America, lived in Ohio for a number of years, was <clears throat> educated there as a lawyer and a minister, uh, organized uh, churches in Ohio, and for 20 years or more led churches there but felt a strong missionary call to come to Oklahoma when the land began to open. So he made the run in the unassigned lands in 89. He made that run and he claimed a farm just outside of Hennessy. <clears throat> and he settled there and, was, and helped with the organization of churches. When the Cherokee Strip was settled, or the Cherokee Outlet was settled, um, he was already close by, and Reverend Parker reached out to him and said, move through the Cherokee Strip and help these communities organize churches. So, on December 23, 1894, he was, uh, he was in this area. He, they uh, met at the home of um, the Hills, and I have um, to give you an appreciation for where that is, I want you to understand this map. Okay, this little hatched area is the current town of Hillsdale. Okay, I don't want to stand in somebody's way. The hill place is uh, right up here. In fact, my slide, my screen isn't quite showing. Okay. It's the very northernmost um, line in in um, the county, okay, and uh, in Garfield County. Right on the edge of that line is where the Hill House was, where those people met to establish the first church, okay. 
there was no Hillsdale town at that time. This was just, you know, farms and prairie. But they met in that home and decided right away that they would form a church and they did all the paperwork and had it sent in so that the date on our certification uh, as a, to organize as a church is December 23rd, 1894. They had a, a, a special meeting in January, just the next month, to elect a solicitation committee. Now, I found this very interesting going through the records. For the first few years, they developed the, the concept of, of uh, solicitation committees. This was a committee of three people who would go out and talk to all the folks who were interested in membership in the church and get them to agree to provide so much financial backing for the church for the next year. They solicited for funds to run the church and pay the minister for the next year. Okay, now what really piqued my attention was that that solicitation committee was very commonly made up of three women. Okay, you would have thought that three men would have been doing that job, especially before 1900, but often it was three women who were the solicitation committee. Maybe they could use more um, skill in getting people to bring forth their money. Um, but they were fairly successful because just in a few months, they're wanting to build a building. Okay, In April, they decide to um, build a building, and in the summer of 1895, they build on the northeast quarter, northeast corner of that quarter I was showing you up there, right up here. Okay, And the original town of Hillsdale forms just across the, the quarter section line, okay, on the what would be the northwest corner of the next quarter over, okay? So the uh, church was on one quarter on an acre of land that they bought for $50 from the Hill family, and then the town of Hillsdale was just across the quarter section line, okay? And it included a post office, a, a blacksmith shop, a, a general store, and a few other buildings. Five or six buildings is what it was made up of. Um, <clears throat> the first minister was, our first minister was John Hawks, okay? He came um, to do Sunday services from Hennessy, okay? Now, they did a, there were also several other churches here. There was a cold water congregational church that formed almost immediately to, and Carrier congregational church formed. There was a church at Gold Tree, okay, um, that was a congregational church. There were multiple churches. They did a good work getting those churches started in this area. Reverend John Hawks took on three of those churches each Sunday to do the sermons. He did Hillsdale, Coldwater, and Carrier. He would leave home, uh, have an early morning service uh, in one of the three churches, have an afternoon service in the other one, and then have an evening service in the third. And he rotated which church got to have the Sunday morning service. So one Sunday out of three, you had a Sunday morning service. One Sunday out of three, you had an afternoon service. One Sunday out of three, you had an evening service. It, if you think about his only mode of transportation was a horse or a horse and buggy, that's quite a bit of land to cover to get from Hillsdale to this area to hold those church, church meetings. So um, he was a busy man. During the week, he went back home, but the records show that he was very attentive to his congregations, and he would come for, uh, if he were needed, for a wedding, a funeral, uh, the sick, okay, anything that a pastor would be needed for, he would leave his home and come and tend his flock. And he served for several years as the minister of all three of those churches simultaneously. Now... <clears throat> The um, churches, a couple of things that are interesting, they raised the money for his salary 
But times were very, very hard in the 1890s. There's, if you look in history, there's the Panic of 1893, one of the most severe of our depressions as a nation. It was a worldwide thing, okay? And um, it really limited the flow of cash. There was very little money available. And uh, one way that the Congregational Church helped to keep the, um, the churches going was they provided funds to help with the minister's salary. So you could get a portion of your minister's salary from the mission church, if you, from the mission organization if you made application. And we did that regularly. And also with the building of the church, they would give you a portion of the money that it took to build the church. Okay. Um, never would they pay the entire amount. They expected the individual churches to come forward and do some of it on their own, which is a great way to be. But for years, they supported these churches in terms of funds that they needed. So, um, so that was the origin of our church, and we stayed there in that area for 15 years, okay? The other church that organized is the Coldwater Congregational Church, and you see it organized on September 22, 1895. So it was a little later organizing. It went through the very same process, went through the very same process, and um, shared the minister, built a building, okay, had, they sort of served the people on the west side of 132, if you think of it. You know, there was no 132, but the people on the west side and Hillsdale served, uh, that Hillsdale location served people on the east side. Um, kind of interesting in the, the history of, the, the early history of the Hillsdale Church, by October of 1896, okay, they'd been through one winter in their church building. By October, they bought a stove, okay, the next winter, so they were ahead there, and it was the requirement of the head of every household to bring three sticks of wood for, so they could have warmth during the services. Okay? Um, but you know there isn't a whole lot of wood available in this area that's all grassland, so it isn't that about a couple of years, and they raised money to buy a load of coal, and they burned coal in for heat. Okay? Um, the church got its name, Hillsdale. Congregational Church because of the Hill family where the original meeting was and who get who helped with the one acre of land to build the church. Okay. <clears throat> now on April eighteenth, eighteen ninety seven, eighteen ninety seven, the churches were about four years old, four and a half years old, around four years old. They had a wonderful celebration. Reverend Parker came from Kansas and held the uh, dedication of the two churches, okay? So, uh, and also did Carrier Church. All three churches are dedicated that same day. And I'm sure one had the dedication in the morning, one had it afternoon, one had it in the evening. Um, but, um, so that was the day that um, they were dedicated. I think it's neat that this uh, wonderful Christian man who gave so much energy and time to organizing churches and schools and things across Oklahoma and Kansas, that he was the one who was here to be uh, in charge of the dedication of this, this church and of the Coldwater Church. Now, the, um, the church, how did we wind up in Hillsdale? I want to tell you that in closing. The railroad, the Ena, Denver, and Gulf Railroad, decided to come right smack through the middle of the prairie on its way to Topeka, Kansas. Okay? It was going to tie the Enid to uh, Kansas. Okay? It was going to tie those two areas together. And it came, it came right up this pathway. Okay? Right up this pathway. And it was the announcement went out in in 1904 that they were going to have a railroad come through, being built from Enid North. Okay. The um, 
November 30, 1904, Hillsdale Church Records say, a railroad is coming through the area. We need to move the church. We need to move the church. Everything is going to develop around the railroad, okay? No highways or anything yet, but the railroad is going to be that growth, and there was going to be a stop there at that place. So <clears throat> this part was purchased and divided into lots, and lots were sold. And um, the um, I think it's very interesting, November 30th, 1904, with that news that the uh, railroad is coming, the church says we need to move. December 19th, they postponed the moving. Um, February 1st, 1905, see how fast things are helping. The, the railroad stops for the first time in Hillsdale. Okay, it's reached that far. Um, and then later that year, um, just later that month, February 21st, there's this quote in the books that says, the church needs to be moved to the new town of Coldwater as soon as possible. So when did they move it? It wasn't until 1910, okay, 1909. They moved that church. So I, I think it took them a long time to figure out to do it. What did they do with their church building? They just left it. They uh, didn't see that it was very feasible to move it. It's very rough terrain if you go that way. Jay Messenger would know that there is a unbelievable creek you would have to cross. And, that, you know, I told you Hillsdale had a um, general store. They did move it from over there to here on skids and with pulled by mules, pulled by teams of animals. And, um, and they even managed to cross what the book says as a treacherous creek to get here. The church building, though, they just left there, and they um, bought a church from, uh, that had been in existence that had been abandoned down south of Hillsdale. They bought this church from the Mennonite Brethren uh, congregation about three miles to the south that had merged with somebody else. This building was over on the west side of town, okay, over on the west side of town, a block south and then over to the edge of town. And it sat there. That, that's where it was. It was there from 1910 till 1917 when this building was built, this brick building, okay. It, look at the top. You see the bell in the belfry? It's in the church records that they wanted a belfry on the new church that they were going to have. And the ladies' embroidery club took it as their project to raise the money to buy the bell. And so in this picture, you see the bell installed. So that bell that we have out there in our bell tower really is older than this building, okay? It was hung there in 1910 because of the efforts of the ladies that to provide that bell they wanted the sweet sound of that bell-tolling music to be heard to announce church. And uh, so that bell is still there uh, all these years later, uh, 110 years later. Isn't that amazing that that bell survives? Um, and just as an aside, I want to tell you, Harry Johnson used to ring that bell regularly every Sunday morning. Many of you remember hearing it. We live three miles north and a little bit east. On very clear, calm days, we could hear that bell calling us to church. That's a wonderful memory to have of that, that bell ringing. Okay? About that same time, the Coldwater Church decided to disband. They weren't having the numbers of people that they needed in 1909. And so they voted to disband and to give all of their supplies and materials to the Hillsdale Congregational Church. They did not vote to merge with the Hillsdale Congregational Church. They just voted to disband. But they gave letters to their congregation, and many, many, many of their congregational people came over to join the Hillsdale Church. The Hofstadter clan came into the Hillsdale Church that way, okay, from the Coldwater Church, <coughs> the others too. Um, the 
the thing that uh, is very interesting to me is that the Hillsdale Congregational Church kept its name, Hillsdale, when it moved, but it was in the town of Coldwater. The town was named Coldwater. And it was named Coldwater because of this Coldwater community that was on my map over there on the west side of town. Uh, and it was called Coldwater because that was the name of the company that bought up all the land and sold the town lots, you know, for the town of Coldwater. There, um, in a few years, about 19, 10, or 11, they uh, came to uh, have a, a difference of opinion as to whether the town should be called Hillsdale or should be called Coldwater. So they, um, as a community, they petitioned to the state uh, to uh, have a vote on what they should be. And uh, it looked pretty much like it should have gone towards the town of Coldwater because that was the established name. That's the name all the lots were sold under. You know, that's what the railroad had indicated is that that would be the stopping place, a community called Coldwater. All of those things tended to um, uh, spell out Coldwater as the name. But uh, there was one little hitch and that there was some confusion between Coldwater, Oklahoma and Coldwater, Kansas in terms of some of mail. But really that wasn't a major a major, major issue. That was more of a minor thing. When they had the vote, um, unbelievably it came out very heavy for the town name to be Hillsdale. So the um, state uh, or okayed the vote that it was the right vote and that it was credited, and so they changed the town name from Coldwater to Hillsdale. So we were Coldwater for about six years or so, and then we became Hillsdale. We've been Hillsdale ever since. What's very interesting is when we were Coldwater, we had a newspaper, the Coldwater Star, and the library in, um, in I mean, the museum in Enid has a couple of years of copies of that old map, uh, that old newspaper. Maybe some of you have them from your families. I don't know. I've not seen one. Um, <clears throat> and um, Hillsdale Church, then uh, the name began to match the name of the town. There are neat pictures that show the train stop as the train station as Coldwater and then show it as Hillsdale. You know, same building, different name. Okay, just briefly, let me finish this for you. The church didn't give up its congregational name until the 1980s. In the 1930s and 40s, the congregational denomination lost a lot of its um, sound, what we would call sound Bible-based doctrine. They joined forces with several other denominations and had a much more liberal religious doctrine than what we accept today and what we accepted then. We voted in the 1940s not to join the merger. So we voted ourselves out of the congregational denomination. Okay? We became an independent church. But we kept the name, Hillsdale Congregational Church. And we kept that. Even though we were not a part of the congregation, didn't participate in any congregational uh, organizational meetings or their missions or anything. We, we went independent. We did everything on our own. When um, it took us until 1982 to drop that congregational out of our name. Why did it take so long? I think it took time for a whole generation of people to pass away who had grown up raised in that congregational church, this congregational church, the doctrine it originally stood for, and they, it was just hard for them to turn their backs on that. And so, actually, we sort of, we became, to me, Hillsdale Bible Church in the 1940s. It just didn't happen officially until the 1980s. Okay? Well, the time is up, and I wanted to at least get that far to show you what um, the history <clears throat> and the background of this church is for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons. One, I want you to know how great our God has been to sustain this church through so many years 
and so many challenges and so many difficulties and so many times of triumph and so many times of wonder and joy. We've had it all. And God has been steadfast and faithful all that time. And I, I feel like he's just as much here as he ever was with us. And that, and that will not change. Um, God reigns. And then I, I think that um, it's, it, I wanted you to have that opportunity to understand what those congregational roots are. They are good roots. They are really good roots. Okay? Uh, and to see what an influence that idea of developing an individual relationship with God and being able to worship God in uh, by yourself without the need of a priest or somebody to lead you to tell you how to how to live that you and and your God and His Word would be what you would need uh, to make you. Um, a life that's worth living and and a life dedicated to our Heavenly Father. So if you carry those things away from here, then you will have gained what I wanted you to have. Now, there is another session we should have sometime where we leave that church and come here and move forward because there are wonderful, wonderful things that happen all along the way as our church grows and becomes independent and um, um, uh, develops a um, character for being a godly church, a character for being a godly church. So I appreciate your attention. There are um, uh, lots more things to talk about, and I hope sometime we get an opportunity to look further into what's here. I think we are blessed to have the material available to us that we do uh, so we can see what our heritage is and I think we are blessed to have that heritage and I am blessed to have had the opportunity to share this with you. So thank you. Thank you very much.